Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's good to be back on the air, and we have a lot of great information to uh, cover tonight in Founding Rivals, Madison versus Monroe, The Bill of Rights and the Election that Saved a Nation by Chris DeRose. Tonight's focus is going to talk about the years from 1777 into um, the middle of 1780. I know many of you out there are thinking to yourselves, how can all of that uh, time frame be discussed in a night's uh, span? Well, what we're going to focus on, though, is the most uh, critical components of Madison and Monroe's lives during this time span and how each of them have still continued to contribute to the greater good of their country, even in the most trying of circumstances. So, uh, tonight's uh, first bonus lead-off question will be the following. Before I actually ask the question, many of you all have often believed or assumed, and there's nothing wrong to believe or assume, but we've all been accustomed to just knowing that there was only one governing document that is still with us today, that that is being the United States Constitution from 1787. But I must point out that there were other governing um, documents that guided our country before the Constitution came around. Uh, One was the Articles of Association, and then there was another one called the Articles of Confederation. So, What would become the official governing document adopted by Congress on November 15, 1777? That answer is the Articles of Confederation. You know, the Articles of Confederation, it probably was not the best document for its time, but many in Congress said it was the best they could come up with. Given the... um, circumstances that were at stake, most notably being at war with England. And so, you know, yes, it would be great to say, hey, why can't we just form our own separate government? Well, the problem is that we don't have a president just yet. We don't have a national legislature, and we we certainly don't have a national judiciary system. So we don't have a proper government that uh, works for the people and for by the people just yet. So the article, many of you all are now thinking to yourselves, well, how is the Articles of Confederation going to work? Well, I did a little research. Even though, yes, I read this book three years ago, I still am having to remind myself of just how um, essential the information I have obtained in dis- in, in these podcast sessions has been um, useful because when I reread it, uh, it does make me all the more appreciative of what sacrifices were made to get to um, to get to that uh, road of uh, 1789 when George Washington would become president. So for the Articles of Confederation, would each state have equal representation? Uh, the answer is yes. And the only way that equal representation was achieved was that small states would have the same number of votes as the largest of states. If the opposite had happened, then the small states would not have joined on any other terms. And, you know, this uh, is a precursor or what would 
lie ahead 10 years from now when the Constitution would be, um, when the um, Articles of Confederation were ditched for to establish our present-day um, system of government that we've known for 233-some years, one of the biggest uh, problems down the road would once again come down to uh, equal representation based on the size and population of states. But in 1777, those uh, serving in Congress in Philadelphia really have no other choice but to say, okay, the small states will um, have the same number of votes as the large states. But it turns out that each state's only going to get one vote. And two representatives per each state would be sent to Philadelphia at the minimum and a maximum of seven delegates. And a good system of checks and balances that probably did come about with this was that there would be term limits. In other words, each delegate could only serve three years of service in a six-year period. I think what many of these members in Congress were worried about was that if people stuck around for about 10 years or more, they might have uh, not only just too much power, but perhaps they could be engaged in doing things that might become um, we, we might think of as inappropriate or uh, just um, something that would lead to, to an undoing for them. But I do think it was probably smart in 1777 to have a minimum of two representatives from each state and seven at the max. I think if, if, those, if those numbers had not been put into check, then you would have had a problem, say, with New York. Then there could have been problems, say, with Virginia having ten representatives to Delaware's two. But the irony to it all is that Virginia, being the largest of the 13 states, actually opposed this uh, compromise because they didn't like the fact, the delegates didn't like the fact that their vote wouldn't be as powerful or let alone more powerful than, say, Delaware or New Jersey, which were smaller states compared to Virginia. But in the end, Virginia really didn't have any other choice but to go along because it's like what Ben Franklin said in 1776 in Philadelphia when the delegates came to sign the Declaration of Independence, or the signers, rather. What did he say? He said the following, We shall all sign together, and if not, we shall all hang together separately. So this is another reminder right here of, what, of something that maybe isn't to Virginia's liking, but if Virginia doesn't go along, then how can they be a part of the um, greater cause for independence against England? And as I said earlier, the Articles of Confederation weren't perfect. And yes, there were flaws, but given the circumstances at stake being war with England, this was the best solution at that present state of time. If it weren't for the Articles of Confederation at that period of time, I'm not sure what else would have been um, been able to have been uh, salvageable for the government to um, operate under in terms of a binding uh, document. So here's another bonus question for you all. Uh, this is going to pertain to uh, both James Madison and James Monroe. 
Did both of these men earn promotions in November of 1777? The answer is yes. For James Monroe, he is promoted to major. And remember, folks, he's in the military. And James Madison has earned a spot on the Council of State. Now, I'm sure a lot of you all are wondering, what in the world is the Council of State? Well, the Council of State, for one, in Virginia, has been around since the time that the um, first legislative body was established in um, in what was then uh, the New World or Colonial America, uh, being the House of uh, Burgesses or what we might refer to as the modern-day General Assembly back in 1619. But the Council of State was a governing body. It was an eight-member um, governing force that advised the governor directly on a variety of matters, especially on what to support, what to oppose, how to go about uh, addressing the issues uh, before uh, the Burgesses. But, of course, once Virginia has declared her separation from England, and, of course, Lord Dunmore dissolved the House of Burgesses, the new name now for representatives is Delegates. So that's a great example of breaking from the old and switching over to the new. So the Council of State is like the equivalent of the U.S. Senate, if that gives any of you all any inclination of how to make, the comp- how to make a comparison or how to best describe the Council of State. They are an elite group of men who, ha- who um, advise the, um, the governor on what are the uh, proper courses of action to take. You might even it might even be fair to say that the Council of State could be like a modern day presidential uh, cabinet body. So um, here's a good uh, question for you all: Who becomes the first non-royal governor in Virginia? His name is Patrick Henry, and for most for all of you Virginians out there listening, we all know Patrick how well accomplished Patrick Henry was. But when I tend to think of Patrick Henry in terms of his uh, occupation, I tend to think of him as being a great lawyer. But if there's one speech that comes to mind, it was his speech at St. John's uh, Episcopal Church in Richmond in in early 1775. He was inspired by the uh, the Roman philosopher uh, Cato. And he said the following, I... I don't know I don't know what other court what course others shall take or what other course others may take but as for me give me liberty or give me death. So Patrick Henry has become quite a uh, leader so it would make sense for him to be a governor. What would have been Madison's first duty? Uh, well, for one he's on the governor's um Council of State body, but his first duty as being a member to the Council of State would have been the following. He had to respond to a letter from the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, which involved the dire situation at Valley Forge, where troops were on the brink of starvation, and they were in desperate need of food supplies. Now, any of you all know where Valley Forge is? I can tell you right now, it's on the outskirts of Philadelphia. It's probably about, I want to say maybe 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia. 
I've never been to Valley Forge, and I would like to get there one day. Valley Forge was referred to as a time of um, endless uphill uh, struggles from within the Continental Army. It just wasn't so much uh, Washington's army that was impacted by these um, desperate times. Many in Congress were impacted as well, and most notably James Madison. Or should I say even not just in Congress, but in other uh, colonies, most notably Virginia. For James Madison, he was deeply impacted by the situation in Valley Forge as his own brother's life, including many other friends whom were dear to him, they were facing endless uphill battles from within to su survive the harsh wintry weather conditions. So, you know, in the winter time, as we all know, that's when military forces in the 18th century will um, will rest their units or their whole brigades of uh, troops to get them ready for the spring. We've already established that the opposite had happened a year earlier in December of 1776 when George Washington and his ragtag Continental Army of 2,400 men, or, or just below 2,400 men, uh, crossed over the Delaware River into um, New Jersey and uh, began that 10-mile walk, or not so much walk, I'm going to say, but a 10-mile journey to their ultimate target being Trenton, where um, there, the Hessian garrison was. That was a very unique period of time because the Continental Army obviously was on the brink of collapse. So that was a great example of where circumstances had to be uh, different in order to uh, keep the flame for um, independence alive. But a year, let's fast forward a year later to 1777, we're facing um, much more... Um, different um, extremes. And I'll ask you this question here. Was James Monroe at Valley Forge during Pennsylvania during the winter of 1777-1778? Uh, the answer is yes. James Monroe witnessed a lot of um, suffering with troops around him. He best described the situation as one that lacked patriotism given how dire the weather conditions were throughout the winter season. You know, yes, the, the soldiers were more than willing to go above and beyond to fight for their country. But when you are in a dire situation where there are, where there are not enough provisions, enough food and proper shelter to house the men, then how can um, showing patriotism day in and day out be um, visible? I can't imagine um, trudging through the deep snow. For many of these men, they had shoes that, that didn't even cover their toes all the way, or let alone their feet, I should say. Now, I can't imagine enduring frostbite. I can't imagine enduring in some cases, maybe hypothermia if you fell through uh, icy water. I, you know, sadly, many of Washington's men died from starvation and disease 
As a matter of fact, uh, George Washington, uh, on December 21st of 1777, George Washington and his army, which was which comprised of 11,000 troops. That's a strong number, but I will promise you this, folks. I would say well over 1,000 men at best. I, I, my numbers could be wrong, but I could say if not around 1,000, it would have been below or close to it. A thousand men at least did not make it through the um, winter uh, campaign uh, due to uh, starvation, disease, and in, in a few instances there were um, rebellions from within or what were called mutinies. There were a handful of soldiers who, based on a documentary that I saw a few years back on the History Channel where a handful of soldiers um, seek, planned a secret mission to um, to uh, leave Valley Forge and go to Philadelphia to um, demand for better um, services, to demand um, pretty much a whole new makeover. But the plot was so extreme that those who um, were willing to carry it out were caught and brought back to Valley Forge. And from what I saw in the documentary... Those who were the uh, conspirators, as long as as well as the co-conspirators, were blindfolded, and a group of men with rifles or muskets fired shots into the air. If that wasn't enough to startle the conspirators as well as the co-conspirators, the next group of men lined up and actually killed them all. It was a message for George Washington to send to the rest of the army that hey, these mutinies or let alone acts of insubordination, will not be tolerated. Yes, we are in a very dire situation, but engaging in, in um, how do I say it, and engaging in um, mutinous activities will be unacceptable. If you engage in these kinds of activities, then how can you keep a continental army together? So... That is a, a strong example of just how um, bad the situation was. But what I do know is this. When George Washington and his army of 11,000 troops arrived into uh, Valley Forge, there were no accommodations. I, I think that, that that should ring a bell right there. If, if a good chunk of your men die from disease and starvation, it's because they don't have any proper way to... Um, prevent themselves from getting exposed to frostbite or just be able to be um, immune from the cold. So I guess the next question is, is, is if there weren't already any accommodations found, how are Washington's men going to even be able to construct the basic foundations of adequate shelter? Well, I will tell you this. Um, None of them had nails. In other words, you need to have nails to be able to build, you know, like a fort or let alone a, um, like a redoubt fortification. But for Washington's men, they had, given that there were no nails for building purposes, his men resorted to taking wooden planks. And with that, uh, with wooden planks in play, they went about constructing 14 by 16 foot huts where the soldiers would live in groups of 12. Now think about that, folks. Can you all imagine living in a group of 12? Well, look, I mean, 
there's no way that every soldier is going to be able to have um, living quarters to his own. Good luck in this trying time. So about 12 men would live in um, each um, foot hut, but construction all, on all huts was not completed until January 13th of 1778. So we're looking, if Washington's troops arrive on December 21st of 1777, at best we're looking at just right over three weeks for all these huts to have been completed. And remember, folks, too, we couldn't hire out uh, private contractors to do the job. So this is um, good ingenuity at its best, but it uh, does come with a price. Chances are that a handful of soldiers will have already died before all the huts were even completed. And who's to say that um, that there might have been some um, hostilities between 12 men or, or amongst all 12 men in a hut. It, it's very possible. I don't know if there were any recorded events that led to hostilities, but you can bet your bottom dollar that Washington had close watch on a lot of things. Yes, he uh, Washington himself pleaded with Congress. But here's the problem, folks. It's not that Congress doesn't care. They just don't have the money to be able to fund everything. We really are, um, I mean, it's a miracle that we even have a form of government that's functioning, but this government is hanging by a thread. You know, it's one thing to declare your separation from another country, but it's how you're going to keep the people together in the darkest of times. And this is what the Continental Congress is facing right now. Each day is a new challenge. They don't know what one week's going to be like after the other, and they certainly don't know how even one defeat can shake up not just the, the army itself, but, it, but how the army is going to regroup after that defeat. Because all it might take is just a couple of defeats, and then this war itself is over. So each battle is going to be a, a test of make, make it or break it. Now, there is some good news to report. On February 6th of 1778, the Treaty of Alliance formally brings the French into the Revolutionary War. Now, it took about three months for Washington to learn of this news, but you know what? <laughs> even, after he, even after he and his men learned about it three months later, guess what? Washington issues a day of celebration for the entire Continental Army. Why not? They have endured, they've been through hell, <laughs> pardon me, but it, it's, I would say they have been through hell, and in the end, they are going to emerge um, as, better, as a better unit once spring arrives in Valley Forge, because there will be a Prussian master, uh, drill master by the name of Baron Frederick von Steuben. Now... The American version of his last name is Steuben, but in his time he was referred to as um, Baron Frederick von Steuben. He would be the one to um, take over the reins and, and go about uh, conducting better drills for the soldiers. And his uh, service was very uh, useful, to say the least.
Now, how did James Monroe keep his sanity uh, together during these trying times? Well, Chris DeRose pointed, mentioned that James Monroe was an avid reader of poetry. So he read a number of books on poetry to modify whatever personal hardships he had endured at Valley Forge. So I think it's fair to say that James Monroe had enough uh, common sense and smarts not to have participated in any of those uh, failed mutiny plots. If he had, then we all know what would have happened to him. He would have been executed. So that would have been the end of his life right there. All right, here's a good bonus question right here regarding James Madison. What kind of affairs did James Madison oversee while serving on the Council of State? Well, the affairs that he was involved in were wartime related. He oversaw the purchases of gunboats to repairing of barrack stations. And if any of you are wondering what are barrack stations, it's another word for prison stations or what we might think of as um, correctional uh, prison facilities in today's modern day world. His other uh, service, uh, what do you call it, his other responsibilities uh, ranged from uh, repairing um, to, uh, what do you call it, ordering uh, supplies. Uh, supplies, believe it or not, ranged from rum, wine, and sugar for the Continental Army. After all, folks, you know, the con if, you know, it's one thing to eat food and all that, but you've got to find ways to stay hydrated. And I should point out that the closest drinking um, drinking uh, facility from Valley Forge was a mile away. So what does that tell you right there? That the best areas to even consume water were you would have to go a mile out of the way. Sorry folks, but no bottled water back then just didn't exist. He, uh, Madison himself also oversaw um, how rifles were provided for troops whose job was to ward off Indian attacks on the western frontier. After all, folks, you know, yes, the fighting may be on the East Coast, but when we say Western Frontier, we're talking about present-day Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio, um, which you call around the Ohio Valley, uh, south of the uh, Ohio River area. Because think about it, you know, in today's modern-day uh, geography, Kentucky and uh, West Virginia border Virginia, but there are... Um, a strong presence of Shawnee and Mingo Indians who, um, if we're not careful, they can cross over into our territory and they could um, establish alliances with Britain and um, and leading, uh, what do you call it, surprise attacks on us. So the bottom line is, is that we're not, Im we're not immune to anything. So in order to keep our Western territory safe, we have to have men who are willing to defend those posts. And the last one I thought that I really thought was extremely interesting, and I've known about this for some time because this um, war camp existed in Charlottesville, which uh, for many of you all who don't know where Charlottesville is in Virginia, it's in Albemarle County, um, Monticello, you know, being Thomas Jefferson's home. But uh, James Madison um, 
helped oversee the establishment of a prisoner of war camp in Charlottesville. It turns out that um, there is a that there is a road in Charlottesville known as Barracks Road. How Barracks Road got its name was um, it had to do the road where that road is uh, many many years ago during the American Revolution after 1776. The Hessians who were captured at Trenton were relocated to a prison camp that was constructed in Charlottesville. And Thomas Jefferson, before he became governor, he would come to visit the prisoners. As a matter of fact, he even met with some of the high-ranking Hessian um, officials and even uh, played music with them. That's how... um, what do you call it? That's how uh, welcoming Jefferson was to these outsiders. But it turns out, um, not to get too far ahead into the um, timeline of the American Revolution or the war itself, we do know, uh, based off of what um, historians or historical uh, guides at Monticello have said, that um, after the war ended, many of these um, Hessian um, men were eventually released and they did establish uh, families in Charlottesville, in the greater Charlottesville area. So, Barracks Road got its name after this um, barracks, um, after this uh, barrack, um, barracks prison that had been built uh, not long after the uh, Battle of Trenton. So, um, on uh, June 1st of 1778, Thomas Jefferson was elected as the second non-royal governor, he uh, succeeds Patrick Henry. And I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, did James Monroe fight throughout the entire America, throughout the entire war as a soldier? It turns out that his last, that the last battle in which he actually saw combat in was at, at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse in Monmouth, New Jersey. It turns out that the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse would be the last major battle fought on northern um, soil, or let alone, I should say, between northern and middle colony soil. Because in late 1778, after the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, the British decide to take a new approach, and that approach will be to wage war in the southern colonies where they are truly convinced that, especially in the colonies of Virginia, of uh, South Carolina and Georgia, they can find that they are truly convinced that they will be able to find enough loyalists who can actually conduct a full-scale uprising that will basically um, take over those who are non-loyal to the crown to the point where they can crush the war itself. Little do the British know that over time that this strategy will backfire on them. But I don't want to spoil all the fun just yet. But that's the direction, though, that the British are going in as 1778 will eventually be coming to an end. But I I should point out, though, with the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, just how essential this battle was. Because for James Monroe, it was a truly... It was a great way to end his uh, military um, career on the battlefield. However, this battle did not start off on the right track for us. 
It had nothing to do with James Monroe or George Washington. It just so happened to do with a fellow named, who was on the uh, Patriot side, he was a general, Charles Lee. And yes, he was from the famous Lee family of Virginia, who would go on to produce a famous member who would be born at the, in the early 19th century, a fellow named Robert E. Lee, or who was known as Robert Edward Lee. Charles Lee almost, um, he pretty much almost ruined everything that could have uh, gone wrong in terms of, uh, he could have almost been ultimately responsible for the Army's collapse at Monmouth. But Charles Lee had decided that it was okay to um, not instruct his troops on proper orders. And instead, it resulted in a major retreat that pretty much was on the brink of disaster had George Washington not arrived in time. There was a documentary where this reenactment was shown and soldiers were retreating. They weren't running, but they were just walking. And Washington spotted them and basically had said, you turn around right this second. And he confronted Charles Lee, and apparently it was a very, very nasty confrontation, but Washington had every right to confront him the way he did. So to make matters worse for Charles Lee, his actions resulted in court-martial. Glad I wasn't in Charles Lee's shoes. So where did the good result in all of this, given that, that we pretty much uh, almost uh, suffered a crushing debacle? Well, James Monroe Lee led a scouting party near the enemy lines that would enable him to figure out that the British forces would hit the Americans on the right flank. And it just so happened that George Washington and a handful of his forces were positioned in that actual flank spot on the right side. Monroe's warning allowed Washington and his troops to turn back the British offensive attack. So there you have it, folks. If it weren't for James Monroe, not only could Washington's forces or troops that he had stationed with him, not only would they have been attacked... But there's, there could have been a very good likelihood that Washington could have been shot. If not shot, he could have been taken as a um, prisoner. And not just a prisoner, but the granddaddy of all prisoners. If Washington were captured, um, I think it's fair to say the war itself would have just ended. Uh, lickety split right there. Now, uh, for James Monroe, on December 20th of 1778, he would submit his resignation from the Continental Army, but in August of 1779, he would be commissioned as a lieutenant colonel of um, State Line in Williamsburg. And I guess what that just means is that he um, was overseeing all the um, operations that were occurring from uh, on the state boundary lines, in this case, like for Virginia, North Carolina, that kind of thing. But it never really um, amounted out to anything. But 
what I can tell you this that um, did change did change James Monroe's life forever, and for all the right reasons, was that um, when he comes back to Williamsburg, he resumes his uh, studies at William and Mary, but he um, became a lot closer to Thomas Jefferson, whom inspired Monroe to become a lawyer. So, you know, there are a lot of very influential people in Williamsburg. When I think of perhaps two at this time, I would say Thomas Jefferson and his famous law professor of George Wythe. Jefferson and Wythe had a lot of great respect for one another. I mean, Wythe just wasn't Jefferson's instructor or professor of law. With was like a father figure to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I can tell you this, folks, that Thomas Jefferson was only 14 years old when his father died. As for George With, he wasn't even five years old. He had not reached the age of five by the time his father died. So for Thomas Jefferson, looking up to George With truly was like a father. He saw With as like the father he, um, he had never had. I mean, yes, Jefferson learned a great deal from his dad, but with actually, um, there was just something about the, the connection. It was something that Jefferson was, was um, in need of because, you know, he was really, he was, after his father died, he, you know, Jefferson was the oldest of his siblings. Uh, he was one of, um, I want to say six or eight siblings. Two of two of his brothers died in infancy. He only had one other brother, but there was about a twelve-year age difference between him and his brother uh, Randolph Jefferson. So James Monroe would would uh, look up to Thomas Jefferson in all the right ways. Now, in November of 1778, Governor Jefferson and the Council of State, which included James Madison would shift their focus from resupplying distant forces of soldiers who had gone to fight, say, at Valley Forge or who fought at uh, Monmouth Courthouse in Monmouth, New Jersey, uh, or to even as far north as, say, you know, when the fighting was in Massachusetts back in 1775. So now they are uh, re-shifting um, their focus to where, instead of sending troops away, far away, they need to be bringing them back into um, Virginia in the event that an invasion were to take place. So in late 1778, the Revolutionary War will switch gears by having British forces focus on the South, and large parts of Georgia have already been, um, in, uh, have already, um, been um, secured in, uh, in the hands of the British. And if that's the case, folks, you know, South Carolina borders Georgia. Where are the British going to go next? They're going to make their way into South Carolina. So for uh, Jefferson and the Council of State, if there's one thing they, they all now, if there's one thing that they can agree on, I mean, they, they found things other things to agree on, but if there's one here, what is that going to be? It's going to be outlawing the exportation of meats. And we're not talking about sending meats to England or, or anywhere else in Europe. We're talking about sending food in, um, to uh, Pennsylvania for troops or to New Jersey. 
this food's got to stay here in Virginia to help prevent uh, food shortages. After all, if, you, if you've got soldiers here in Virginia, they've got to have proper food rationings as well. Now, on uh, December 14th of 1779, James Madison and Joseph Jones, who is James Monroe's uncle, were sent to Philadelphia in representing Virginia. Now, what's unique for James Madison here is that serving in the Continental Congress would become his first major role on the national stage. And Madison's not even 30 years old just yet, folks, but boy, has he really taken a giant um, leap in the right direction. Now, what's important about March 18, 1780? James Madison officially arrived into Philadelphia after a 12-day journey from Virginia. Here again, folks, there's no modern-day transportation, no high-speed rail, no um, interstates to travel on. He's not probably traveling on the best of roads, but hey, in 12 days and he still made it, uh, that's almost two weeks now, even uh, back in 1776, when Thomas Jefferson went to Philadelphia, it took him about nine days from Charlottesville just to get to Philadelphia. And remember, folks, too, when we're talking about traveling, we're talking about, at best, getting from point A to point B maybe 10 miles in a day. If anybody could get above 10 miles in a day, that's an accomplishment unto itself. Now, okay, James Madison arrives to Philadelphia on March 18th of 1780. Where is he going to be staying? I mean, after all, folks, there aren't any uh, modern-day hotels like we know them today. But he will uh, stay at a boarding house that's really the home of Eliza Trist. And she caters to a handful of uh, members of Congress who are uh, lodging at, at her boarding house. Now, Madison has come very well prepared to Philadelphia. He has thoroughly studied the nation's finances, and the results are beyond dismal, folks. I, I, I hate to say this, but Congress's credit line is depleted. Okay, And all future takings involving currency are going to require full, full support by all the states. So, you know, if your, if your credit is depleted, then how, can you, then how can you even go about raising revenue in general? And think about this, folks. The Articles of Confederation, you know, everybody's regulated. I mean, this is massive regulation here, folks. Minimum of two delegates per each state, maximum seven. Each state gets one vote. So how is Virginia going to fare any better? than, say, Delaware and New Jersey being the smallest of states. So this is a real um, internal struggle that, here's another example that's going to uh, test uh, what I might even say survival of the fittest. And now in early 1780, the Virginia capital will relocate from Williamsburg to Richmond. How so? Well, it's relocating to Richmond in hopes of reducing what could be an imminent attack from happening. So by moving further inland, Thomas Jefferson believes that the chances of an attack uh, 
will be um, will be uh, less likely to happen. But I will tell you this. I'm not going to get too far into it now, but I will tell you this. As much as we would like to think that um, that by moving further inland that the um, the chances of an attack happening would be slim, the opposite will happen. So uh, that's going to be an interesting lesson right there. James Madison had served on the board of Admiralty in uh, Philadelphia. It was the committee that was charged with overseeing American naval efforts, and the board determined that the federal government lacked the money not only to buy the goods, but also it lacked the money to to obtain the resources to build boats, as well as transporting both people, or should I say in this case sailors and goods. You know, if you're if the government's credit has been depleted, I don't see how they can even give money or have the money to build a boat. Remember, folks, we don't have outside contractors uh, who are going to do this work for us. And on June 21st of 1780, the Virginia legislature appointed James Madison to a full term in Congress. And... And in June of 1780, that's also the same time where British forces have overtaken Charleston, South Carolina. So there you have it, folks. Um, Georgia was the first to be captured or or taken um, by British um, authority. Now Charleston has fallen. And what I find interesting about with Georgia was that in late 1779, there were about 400 um, patriots and I'm not sure what the overall number of um, British forces there were, but this was at the Battle of Savannah. The British won. But if there was anything good that came out of this battle was that it, it was also where American cavalry was born. And who was the leader behind the American cavalry movement? His name is Casimir Pulaski. And there is a county in Virginia known as Pulaski. And that is named in honor of uh, Casimir Pulaski, who was the founder of the American Cavalry in the American Revolution. I have uh, watched a program on Casimir Pulaski, and it was uh, very well worth uh, watching. It comes on uh, from time to time on the uh, Smithsonian Channel. Uh, I probably wouldn't want to tell you a whole lot, because if I did, then many of you all would say, what's the point in even watching it? But no, um, in seventeen seven, in late seventeen seventy nine, around September or October, there was the Battle of Savannah, and I do believe that's where Casimir Pulaski sadly lost his life. But we have him to thank for leading the modern, for leading the efforts to establish what we know now as the American Cavalry in the Revolutionary War. So uh, that's all for tonight. It has been great to uh, chat with you all. And I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time when I didn't look forward to being on the air. And if there, and if and if I didn't like being on the air, I'm sure all of you would have said by now that why are you even on the air to begin with? <laughs> a little humor there, but then again, humor is needed even in these times of uncertainty with COVID. Uh, I wonder what our forefathers would think of the uh, current crisis. But you know, back then. In their time, they dealt with epidemics that were confined to certain to a certain region. 
but I think they would be appalled at how um, this uh, pandemic has been uh, is being handled. But that's a whole nother uh, discussion for a whole nother <laughs> subject. But uh, I look forward to being on the air again here soon, and we're going to um, talk some more about um, more about not just the Revolutionary War itself, but uh, other roles that Madison and Monroe are taking. You know, they have both accomplished a lot. Here, James Madison is in Philadelphia. He's not even 30 years of age. James Monroe is just in his early 20s, but yet he's accomplishing a lot of stuff as well. The bottom line is, no matter what direction these men are going in, they've got a lot of uh, good on their side. They're also establishing connections with people. And what do you know? Thomas Jefferson, over time, will be a mentor to both Madison and Monroe. And as my father once said, and it's very true, you know, James Monroe didn't live far at all from Jefferson. Madison was probably about 30 miles at best from Madison and Monroe. But when the three of them were together, it was the talk of town. When those three were together, everybody knew that something good was going on because they were the three most prominent Virginians of their time. Yes, George Washington was, but remember this too. George Washington was a lot older. He was 11 years older than Jefferson, almost 20 for Madison, 25 for Monroe. But James Monroe looked up to George Washington. I believe Madison did too. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, even though he and George Washington would have political differences down the road, uh, Jefferson was our nation's first Secretary of State to George Washington. So we will uh, eventually find out just how um, essential for Madison and Monroe, for both of them, to have uh, Thomas Jefferson as a mentor because Jefferson will look after these two men. Well, folks, uh, thank you again, and uh, have a good rest of your evening. Good night.